Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We um, have been teaching uh, in these uh, Sunday night healing school services for the last uh, several weeks um, a series that we've entitled uh, Healing in the Blood of Jesus. We're using as a, uh, as a study guide, so to speak, um, I'm taking my notes from uh, a book that was written in, uh, uh, I think it was printed in 1930 by a man named Dr. T.J. McCrossin. Dr. McCrossin was a well-known uh, Greek scholar, and um, uh, he brings out some things in, uh, in his book that, uh, uh, concerning the Greek language particularly that, um, uh, that are, in my opinion, very rich and very, uh, very helpful in understanding the doctrine of healing and what God intends for His people. Uh, if you haven't gotten the book, you can get a hold of it through uh, um, Brother Hagin's ministry. He and uh, Dr. Hicks, uh, back in the early 80s, I believe it was, secured the rights to the book and had it reprinted. And it's still available now. Uh, I know that um, uh, some folks have said they've gotten it on Amazon as well. But it's um, uh, I'm getting a, uh, away from my wife saying that there are some back at the bookstore as well if you wanted to get some back there. So uh, at any rate, Dr. McCrossin, it's a... Uh, it's an excellent work. It's not a quick read by any means. It, uh, there are some things in there that take time to, uh, uh, to read and, and look over and digest and reread, and, and, at least for me. Uh, you may be, it may be easier for you to read than, than for me, but nevertheless, uh, we're using that kind of as a guide. Dr. McCrossin brings out or establishes six reasons why healing uh, that he believes from the language, the Greek language particularly in the New Testament, Six reasons why healing, bodily healing, physical healing, was a part of the atoning work of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus. And so one of the, the ones that, uh, that we want to talk about tonight, that where we've gotten ourselves to, his reason number five is because healing is the commandment of the church. Now in Mark chapter 16, Jesus, after he has been raised from the dead, spends some time with his disciples, and then gives them the great commission. Now, the Great Commission is, uh, is usually referred to over in Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, go and make disciples of all men, literally is what it says. But if you, if you compare Mar- Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16, it is the entirety of what is known in the church world as the Great Commission. Now, Mark 16 brings out some, uh, some parts of the Great Commission that, that Matthew does not identify. We'll talk about the differences. We'll talk about some of those things as we go. Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus, just before He disappeared from them, was received back unto heaven. He said to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now the baptism He's talking about here is not water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save you. What He's talking about is being baptized into Christ. He that believeth, in other words, to believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and to confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord, according to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He said, that's what causes you to be baptized into Christ. That's the baptism he's talking about. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, the Bible tells us. Being baptized into Christ is everything. Water baptism is an important thing. It's a good thing. It's a ritual that we follow in the church, but it's just an outward sign of something that's already happened on the inside of you. If you haven't already been saved, going into the water does not save you. If that were the case, then all you'd have to do is go swimming and everybody would get saved. It's not the water. The water is a symbol of that which has already happened on the inside because you believe God. So that's what he's talking about here. Not water baptism, but being baptized into Christ. He that believeth 
and is baptized, believe the gospel, in other words, that Jesus is raised from the dead, and is baptized into Christ, shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs, verse 17, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Verse 19, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with, King James says them, but it's in italics, the translators added it. Certainly the Lord worked with them, but that's not the point he's trying to make. The Lord working with and confirming the word. See, God wasn't just working with them, he's working with the word. He'll work with anybody that preaches the word. So they went everywhere and preached, the Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. Now notice in uh, verse 18, the last of the five signs that he said will follow them to believe in his name is they, will lay, they, the believers, the believing ones literally, shall lay hands on the sick and they, the sick, shall recover. Dr. McCrossin brings out that this is a commandment that Jesus gave to the church. He said this is going to be one of the signs, one of the earmarks, one of the proofs of those who believe in Jesus. Now, who is it that's going to believe in Jesus? Everybody that accepts the gospel and makes Jesus the Lord of their lives. He's not saying these are the signs that will follow the ministry. He's not saying these are the signs that will follow those that are especially called. He said these are the signs that are supposed to follow everybody that believes in the name of Jesus. Now, the fact that he tells them this is proof that healing must be a part of the work of the New Testament church. I don't mean the church inside the four walls. I mean the people of God. Now, if you're reading from, uh, I believe it's the New International Version, you'll notice that there is a little note there. Maybe There may be other, uh, other versions, uh, translations of the Bible that, uh, that say something similar. But I believe it's the NIV. If you're reading in the NIV, you'll find that there's a little note or notation or, or some kind of little letter or something that will bring you over to the reference or the end of the page or wh wherever it happens to be, depending on the, uh, the format of the Bible that you're reading. And it will say, beginning with verse 17 where it says, and these signs shall follow them to believe. Verse 17 through verse, uh, what is it, verse 20? Verses 17 through verse 20, if I remember correctly, I don't have one in front of me, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I believe it's in the NIV that say, these verses are not adequately supported by the original manuscripts. Anybody got an NIV or a translation that says something to that effect? No? One, two, couple? Okay. Let me explain to you what that is. The Bible, the one that you're holding, whatever version it is, is a collection of different manuscripts written at different times, discovered at different points in time, that were compared, consolidated, and therefore we have what is known as the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is made up of the 66 books that are recognized, or, uh, uh, recognized as authentic, given by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are other books, other things that were written that are not part of the canon of Scripture. If you've ever, if you came out of the Catholic Church or you've got a Catholic Bible, you'll find out that there are uh, a certain set of books that's called uh, the Apocrypha. And there are different Gospels. There are different, uh, I think it's Gospel of Timothy is one. There are different uh, uh, books of the Maccabees and different things like that. Things that were written, things that are historical documents, but they are not, they are not uh, recognized by those scholars, the group of people way back when, that identified what was the original canon of Scripture. Now, the canon of Scripture is identified by certain things. Number one, 
any book that is recognized as authenticated as a, a part of the original canon has to reference and has to be referenced by two other books of the Bible. In other words, the scholars who identified the original canon of Scripture are trying to prove the Bible by the Bible. It would make sense that if somebody is coming up with, uh, uh, with something that is, that is unscriptural. For example, if, the, if, if one of the four Gospels was written, and these, got, these were written by men, as, it, as we believe, inspired by the Holy Ghost. But if Matthew is writing something, or Mark is writing something, Mark wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. This is John Mark that was uh, uh, Barnabas' cousin, or nephew, I guess it was, that, uh, that went with Paul and Barnabas on his first missionary journey, got overwhelmed by the circumstances and left and came home. Not a great start. He later became profitable in ministry. He, he, he matured. He, he was somebody that, that Paul said was profitable to him in ministry later on. And so he was somebody that matured in the things of God. Well, that's the Mark that's writing this gospel. How does Mark know? He got saved through Barnabas, his uncle. How does he know what Jesus did in his earthly ministry? He wasn't there to see it. How does he know? Well, there's only one way he could know, and that's by revelation of the Holy Ghost. But if Mark is writing something that somebody like Matthew or somebody like Peter or somebody like John knows didn't happen then don't you think we would have record of that in some kind of historical documents that would tell us? We'll go a little bit further. The canon of Scripture, the original canon of Scripture, is made up of the 66 books that we know of as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Consequently, different translations use different manuscripts to build their text upon. The King James translation uses different, a different set of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that the NIV uses. That's why you're not going to find in the King James anything that says these scriptures, Matthew, uh, or I'm sorry, Mark 16, verses 17 through 20, are not adequately supported because they are supported by the manuscripts that are used for the King James upon which the King James translation is based. But what about the NIV? It's an accurate translation. It's, it's worthy. It's reliable. What about them? Well, some people say, and I, I don't know really who to credit this to. I, I've got my suspicions. But some people say, that the reason that these verses, verses 17 through 20 of Mark 16, are not adequately supported by the original manuscripts is because those that believe in the gifts of the Spirit, those that believe in the doctrine of healing and things like that, even though it never was Jesus' instruction or Jesus' commandments, they came in after the fact and added it to Mark's gospel. And so many people just take the position that, okay, it's not part of it. Mark chooses to end with chapter 16, and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, period. That should be the end. Now, if you compare that to Matthew chapter 28, that fits. So what are we to do with this? Well, there are two ways, two main ways that we need to identify whether or not this is accurate and it should, is, is reliable for us to be believed. One is historical. Now, let me talk to you about historical. The other is the manuscripts themselves. Let me talk to you about the historical elements of this. The four Gospels were written while the apostles were still alive. You with me? After Jesus left and went to heaven, the church begins, the things happen as we know of in the book of Acts. It was during the time period that the book of Acts was taking place that the four Gospels were written. Matthew is not following Jesus around with a, with a, a quill and a parchment taking notes about what's going on. 
even though he is an eyewitness testimony to the account of the things that happened. It was after Jesus left that Matthew wrote. Now, why doesn't Matthew include things can, the, these verses of Scripture that Mark identifies? Well, Matthew's gospel seems to be written to, for the purpose of persuading the Jews. That's why Matthew contains a lot of the genealogy. That's why Matthew deals with a lot. Of, Matthew makes more quotes about the Old Testament and the law than Mark does or even John does. So Matthew wrote his account while John, while Peter, were still alive. Mark writes his account. Peter and John are still alive, as well as most of the other apostles too. But they're both alive when, they are, when this account is written. John knows about these things. So does Peter. Luke writes his account. Luke was part of Paul's company. He's the same author of the book of Acts. Luke writes his account probably later than either Matthew or Mark. We don't know exactly for sure, but more than likely, Luke wrote his as the third of the four Gospels. And, and basically, they're arranged in chronological order. Well, John's still alive. Peter's still alive. Why then does John come back after the fact? He's the last one. He's the, the, the oldest surviving one. He's, he writes his Gospel when probably all the other apostles, all the other disciples, original disciples of Jesus have already passed on and gone to heaven. Why does John write his gospel? John seems to fill in the blanks on things that the others left out. John tells us of things that none of the others do. For example, John gives us more insight as an eyewitness testimony. He gives us more insight to the Last Supper and what the things that Jesus said and the prayer that Jesus prayed and those types of things than anybody else. Well, Matthew might have been able to give us some of those, but his purpose was, to, was primarily to convince the Jews rather than give us the intricate details of what Jesus said. Mark wasn't there, so he wouldn't know unless the Holy Ghost revealed it to him. Luke wasn't there, so he wouldn't know unless the Holy Ghost revealed it to him. Why did John tell us these things? John seems to be filling in the blanks of what the others didn't tell us. John's the one that tells us about the raising of Lazarus. Nobody else does. John's the one that tells us about, uh, in chapter 9, about the man that was born blind. And they asked him the question, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Why was he born blind? Jesus said, Neither one. But he said, My work... My job is to do the works of Him that sent me. Well, what works did Jesus do? Jesus healed Him. Therefore, the works of healing must have been what God sent Him to do. Now, I know that, that a lot of religion will teach that God made the man blind so that Jesus would have somebody to heal. Uh, I'm sorry, that just doesn't fit with the rest of the character and the nature of God for me. First of all, sickness is not of God, it's of the devil. Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Well, that would include the guy in John chapter 9 then too, wouldn't it? That means his sickness, his blindness, had to be satanic oppression. All sickness is. So John seems to be filling in the blanks. Now here's the question that I have for you. If Mark chapter 16 and verses 17 through 20 had already been written, wouldn't John tell us that that's not the case? But historically, historically, the early church fathers, the second generation of the church, refers to Mark chapter 16, 17 through 20. It refers to the signs that follow. What I mean by that is very specifically Irenaeus. He was an early church father. He was one of the leaders of the early church. He was second generation of the church. He was discipled and converted by Polycarp, who was discipled and converted by John. Now, Irenaeus, in uh, I think it was late uh, 100 A.D., something like that, 
Irenaeus refers to these signs that follow the believing ones. Now, would he not know that it was contrary to what both Polycarp had been taught by John, or what he had been taught by Polycarp, and what Polycarp had been taught by John if they were not part of the, of the original manuscripts, if they were not part of the original teaching? Well, what did John teach? John chapter 14, Jesus told us, or Jesus told them, he gives us a record of Jesus saying in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. No question the works included healing. So that certainly lines up with what John taught them, and the record that John gives us of, of Jesus' ministry, is that we would go and do the same works. We certainly know that's the works that began when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 tells us that they were empowered by the Holy Ghost, just as Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What were they empowered to do? Well, on the day of Pentecost, they were empowered to preach in such a way that the conviction of the Lord came upon 3,000 people and they got saved. Acts chapter 3 immediately then tells us how they went to the uh, temple and saw the crippled man at the beautiful gate and got him healed and then told everybody that was the name of Jesus that did the work and 5,000 people got saved as a result of his healing. So there's no question that John and Peter, the two that were used at the beautiful gate, there's no question that they understood that healing the sick was a part of the work that Jesus commissioned the church to do. No question about that, right? Now what about the second evidence? The second evidence has to do with the manuscripts themselves. In 1940-something, uh, uh, I think it was, I think 1940-something, late 1940, maybe 1949, I'm not sure. You can check me out on this. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There was a little shepherd boy throwing rocks into a cave and heard something that sounded like it broke when he threw a rock in there. He went to go look and found all these clay jars, and in these clay jars there were ancient writings. And in many of these things there were, there were fragments of different books of the Bible, all of the books that he found are recognized in the original canon of Scripture. There are 66 books that, uh, that are referenced and, and um, coordinated into the Bible that we have. And one of the things that they found was the last three chapters, I believe it is, what corresponds to the last three chapters of the book of Mark. Now, these writings predated the manuscripts upon which, of the, which the, the, many of the, the translations of the Bible, the NIV included, were based, and those original writings, the Dead Sea Scrolls, contain verses 17 through 20 of Mark chapter 16. So even though the NIV has not been reprinted to say, to remove this, these verses are not adequately supported by the ancient manuscripts, but, and the reason why it isn't, because the basis for those translations, for that particular translation, doesn't include the information in the Dead Sea Scrolls. My point is very simply this. We've got something that goes back further than any of the old ancient manuscripts, King James, NIV, or any other translations that are, that are used, commonly used. We've got evidence. And, and I've I, I got to tell you, I just think this is God sitting in heaven and laughing. Because you've got so many people that want to take the power of the gospel away. You've got so many people that want to take the power in the name of Jesus and make that just apply to forgiveness of sins. Outside of that, you're on your own down here and you never know what God's going to do. That's pretty much the way I grew up. I grew up in a church that said, yeah, God will save anybody no matter what you did, but don't count on His help for anything else. Everything after that, He wants you to do what He wants you to do. He's going to keep you under His thumb, and if you get out of line, you better watch out. 
I still struggle with some of that thinking. Fifty years later. Well, I mean, they ingrained that stuff in me. I was faithful to go to church. I'd been better off not going to church so much. Wouldn't have gotten into me so much. But that was the thing. But I think God sits back in heaven and laughs knowing that he's going to provide proof for those that will accept it that these signs shall follow them that believe. So you've got two evidences. You've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, are pre, which predate the ancient manuscripts that some say don't support these verses. And then secondly, you've got early church historians, early church fathers that refer to these very same things as the work of the church. So therefore, if we accept, you choose for yourself, I've already made my choice, but if we accept that these scriptures are indeed what Jesus said, he told us very specifically that these signs would follow the believing ones. The one we want to focus on is the last one. They, the believing ones, shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick, shall recover. Now turn with me over to James chapter 5. We don't want to build a doctrine just off of one scripture or one group of scriptures. But in James chapter 5, James gives record of the healing commandment for the church. Now, folks, keep in mind what the writers of the Bible are telling us. The writers of the epistles, the New Testament letters to the church. Who do we have? We have Paul. We're going to see, we'll look at some scriptures that show that Paul is operating in the power of God to heal. We've got John. We know that John is operating in the power of God to heal because he was there with Peter in Acts chapter 3. We've got Peter as a writer of, to the church. Peter doesn't say one word in his epistles. In, in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, he doesn't say one word about the church healing. Yet, we know that he operated in the healing power of God because he's the one that commanded the, the uh, lame man to rise in Acts chapter 3. He's the guy that raised, uh, uh, what's her name, from the dead in, uh, in Acts chapter 9. The Bible says that the healing power of God was operating him to such a degree that he just walked through the streets of Jerusalem and people would lay the sick on couches on the streets, the sidewalks, if you will, and just his shadow passing over would cause them to be healed. He knows something about the healing power of God. Well, why doesn't Peter tell us that the church is supposed to heal? Because Peter just focuses on what belongs to us. Nobody that reads First Peter or Second Peter is going to have any question during the day that he was alive, is going to have any question who he is and what he's doing. They're not going to have any question about his reputation because it's well known throughout the whole world that he was used in the healing power of God to a great and mighty way, maybe even greater than anybody else. He may be as well known in that regard as Paul is. So what does he tell us? He tells us in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2 and verse 24, he says, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you were healed. He says he was wounded for your transgressions. He hung on the cross for you, and with his stripes you were healed. Peter focuses not on the work of the church, but on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What about James? Notice in James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, James says, Is any among you afflicted? Now, the word afflicted means trouble, persecution, hardship, or tribulation. In other words, is any of you having a tough time? Well, you wouldn't write that to the church nowadays, would you? You'd leave the if out of there. Is any among you afflicted? What do you do? Let him pray. Prayer must be an answer. 
He doesn't say, just hold on. Who knows, maybe God will take a liking to you and things will change. He says, is any among you in a hard place? Let him pray. Why? Because prayer is the answer. Notice he didn't say get somebody else to pray. Folks, I don't know about you. I just don't trust other people to do my praying for me. You shouldn't either. Doesn't mean you can't get people to agree with you. Doesn't mean you can't get people to help you. But don't trust somebody else to do your praying for you. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. You know, I've never had anybody come and say, Oh, Pastor Mike, things are going so good for me. Would you please sing for me? When things are good, we're willing to sing for ourselves, aren't we? Well, in the same way, we ought to be willing to pray for ourselves. To do our own praying. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? You would not write that to the modern day church. If, or is there any sick among you? You would not put that phrase in there at all. Brother Hagin used to say it like this. If James was writing today, he'd say now to the 75 or 85% of you that are sick, here's what you do. But he says, is there any sick among you? The fact that he asks the question implies that there shouldn't be. It implies that by the work of Jesus, there shouldn't be any sick among the people of God. Now, you're going to have people at varying stages of spiritual development. You're always going to have people that are just coming into the things of God, just finding out. Certainly, that's the case. And James gives instruction of what to do. But he, the implication is, when we learn what belongs to us, when we grow in the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, just like Peter said, by His stripes you were healed, we, we come to realize who Jesus has made us and what's he's, what He has done and what He has accomplished on our behalf, we should be in the place where when that, that question is asked, is there any sick among you? We look around to see who we can help rather than say, yeah, me, me, me. Folks, whether you know this or not, Jesus died on the cross, not just for your sins, but the Bible says He took stripes upon His back. Those stripes represent the same blood that was shed on the cross, shed in Pilate's court for your physical well-being. Jesus shed blood so that His family would be a sickness-free people. That's God's plan. Now, I realize there's some growing up we've got to do. I realize there's some learning and growing in the Word and growing the knowledge of the Word so that we can walk in that. I get that. And if you're not there yet, if we're not there together, if we're not there, that's fine. I understand we're pursuing that. But please understand that's God's best and that's available. If He set something out there that we couldn't achieve, then He's being an unjust and unfair Father. So he says, is any sick among you? Let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And, verse 15, if the elders are anointed, then healing will take place. If the oil has been prayed over, if it's from a special fountain in Israel, Olive trees from the Garden of Gethsemane. Especially blessed by Pastor so-and-so. No, notice what does the work. It's not the elders. It's not the oil. It says, in the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now let's talk about this for a little bit because there's a lot of different objections that people will raise about, about this. First of all, the word used here in verse 15 for save, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, is the, is the word sozo. It's the same word that is used when it's talking about salvation. It's the same word that's used when Jesus says your faith has made you whole. It's translated whole, it's translated well, it's translated free. What is he talking about? Well, where it says, uh, this is the very same word that's used where Jesus says to the woman with issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. He says, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. He's saying, thy faith has made thee sozo. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, shall sozo the sick. He said, daughter, your faith has sozoed you. Now that, please understand, that's not good English. It's not even good Greek. But you get the point that I'm making. Just as Jesus, or just as James is speaking by the Holy Ghost, saying the prayer of faith shall sozo the sick. Jesus is saying to the woman with the issue of blood who was sick, your faith sozoed you. Well, what was her end result? She was healed. The power of God went out of Jesus and into her, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus said, your faith is what did the work. In the same manner, James is saying, just as John told us, the works that Jesus did shall we do also. James is saying, this is how the work is done. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. Now some people will say, some, uh, some groups in the church will say, no, 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 wait a minute, that's not what that means. That means literally salvation. That means forgiveness of sins. It's saying the prayer of faith shall bring them forgiveness of sins. Okay, we've got a problem with that. And here's the problem. Number one, in James chapter 1 and verse 19, I think it is, James writes to my beloved brethren. You wouldn't write that to unsaved people. So therefore, the things, uh, all the things that James writes are written to those who are already born again, those who have already been saved. So the saving of the sick can't just be forgiveness of sins. On top of that, if you read a little bit further in verse 16, it says, um, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of uh, verse 15, it says, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Well, you wouldn't say that to somebody that was unsaved. You wouldn't write, if the unsaved have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The problem with the unsaved is their sin has separated them from God. So it wouldn't make sense for that the word saved to be referring to the unsaved, referring to those who don't know Jesus. No, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the saints, beloved brethren. Therefore, saved cannot mean forgiven from sins because he addresses that in a separate issue. He says the prayer of faith shall save or literally make whole the sick and if these committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Notice it's the same prayer of faith that forgives sins that heals the body. He didn't say, now, you'll, now if there's sins involved, you'll have to say a separate and a distinct prayer. He didn't say that. He said, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. What does that tell us? That tells us not all sickness is a result of the individual sin. Now, that's first and foremost what the devil's going to try to tell you when sickness comes against you. Oh, you missed it somewhere. You made some mistake. You did something wrong. And here's why this came upon you. Because if God was pleased with you, if you were walking in the will of God, this wouldn't have happened. That's not what James is saying. 
Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying, now sickness can be a result of, of sins that have been committed, but not necessarily. And either way, he says the same prayer of faith to receive healing will bring forgiveness of sins so that there's no hindrance for that healing to be received. Can you see that? What about the word sick? Dr. McCrossin brings out that this word sick is, the, is a word that means to, to be tired, exhausted, sick, or ill, and literally reads the one being sick or exhausted. And then he brings this out. He said this word is the, is the word that's used to express Job's physical sickness in the Septuagint. Oh, now folks, we hear a lot about Job, don't we? We hear a whole lot about Job. We hear about what God did to Job and what all things happened to Job and Job this and Job that and Job the other. Here's the word. Now, by the way, in case you don't know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew language. In other words, the Hebrew was translated into Greek and that was what was commonly used in the day of Jesus. Most, if not all, well, there are a few exceptions, but very few exceptions, the times where the, the writers of the Gospels refer back, even the times where Jesus quotes Old Testament scriptures, he's quoting the Septuagint, not the original Hebrew text. Now, Jesus knew the original Hebrew. We know that because when he was 12 years old, he was sitting in the temple after his parents left him behind, you know, when they went to worship. They left him behind, and he's asking questions of the elders, the rabbis and the high priests and so forth. They can't answer his questions, and they're asking him questions that he's answering and astounding them. Well, that wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't known the Hebrew. Because the high priest dealt in the Hebrew. But the Septuagint was the language, or the Greek language, was the language, the common language of the everyday people. And so as a result, those things that are quoted when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament or referring to the Old Testament in sermons that he's preaching to the people and explaining how the things work, things of God work, he's referring to the Septuagint. He's speaking Greek, not Hebrew. Well, consequently, the Bible says that this word sick, this Greek word sick, is the same word that the Septuagint uses to express Job's sickness. Now, folks, let me tell you something about Job. I get so tired of hearing people talk about Job because they talk about stuff they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. But let me point this out. Job is mentioned once in the New Testament. Once. Once in the New Testament. For all the time and all the attention that certain religious folks spend on Job, he's mentioned once in the New Testament. For all the doctrines people try to build out of Job, he's mentioned once in the New Testament. Once. How many times has Job mentioned in the New Testament? You want to know where? James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. Notice he didn't say you have built a doctrine around the patience of Job. He said you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. What is James, inspired by the Holy Ghost, the only writer in the New Testament that was inspired of the Holy Ghost to refer to Job, what does the Holy Ghost inspire James to tell us about the story of Job? His end was the mercy of God. 
Now, why does he tell us this in this place and at this time? Because he's saying just as Job was in a difficult situation, just as Job suffered with some things that were going on, he turned his attention to God. Job, the book of Job tells us that Job was healed when he began to pray for his friends. Remember? He's saying just as Job received the mercy of God in the same way, let him that's sick, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, they'll receive the same healing mercy from God too. Notice verse 16. He goes on to say, after the prayer of faith saves the sick, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The Lord shall raise him up. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. Isn't that what Job did with his friends? Now you don't think, I, 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 I know this is ridiculous, but just humor me for a minute. You don't think that's the reason why he mentions Job here, do you? The only one of the New Testament writers that refers to Job, you don't think that would have anything to do with it, do you? No, no, okay, never mind, just forget that. Why else would he be talking about Job? Why else would he bring up Job? He's saying that Job received the end result of God's mercy. What was the end result of God's mercy? Number one, Job was healed when he prayed for his friends. And number two, God gave him twice as much as he started with. I get amused at these people saying, well, I guess I'm just a modern day Job. Man, if you are, that's the time to start dancing. That's the time to shout. That means healing is yours and you're going to get twice as much as you started with. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. That's exactly what Job did. It's exactly the principle that Job used and operated in to receive his healing. The end result of the Lord's pity and the Lord's tender mercy upon him. Now why is that so? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know something else that Dr. McCrossin brings out about this in verse 15? He says, The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. He brings out that that phrase, raise him up, literally means to lift. It's the same words that are used in Mark chapter 1 and verse 31 where Jesus lifted up Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was sick of a fever. It's exactly, Mark, 11, Mark 1 verse 31 is the exact picture of Jesus reaching down, taking hold of someone, and lifting them up into divine health. That's what the Bible says in James 5.15 when the church operates in the power of God. You know, it's, um, we think of church a lot different than God does. People think all different kinds of things about church. Yeah, the church is the building that people go to. It's a place where you've got to go every now and then or else you know you're really going to make God mad. And, and you know, you've got to put in your time. And, and by the way, there might be good business contacts there too. And, uh, you know, all, people have all different ideas. People have all different reasons for going to church. You know, I can't tell you how many people have come and say, you know, well, I'm only here. My first time here today, my wife drugged me here. Thanks for coming. <laughs> you know, hope it was a blessing to you, you know, whatever. People have all different kinds of reasons for coming to church. People have all different thoughts and attitudes toward church. But let me tell you something that God thinks about church. First of all, He recognizes it as a family. There's only two things that God ever established. One was the family and the other was His family, the church. That's it. 
Everything else is man's idea. Denominations are not God's. That doesn't mean everything about a denomination is wrong. There can be some good things to it. But the divisions between denominations, that never was God's plan. He has one family and that's a church. That's what he calls the church. And God has set a lot of authority in a church. He has established his family to have a lot of authority. You look at some of the things that happened in the early days of the church. Like, for example, in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost to try to gain a position in the church. I don't know if you remember the story or not, but that didn't work out very well for them. They fell dead. Ananias fell dead in church. It was several hours later after Sapphira, I guess, got her hair fixed, then she came. Spent all the time making up for nothing. Because then she fell dead in church too. Folks, the church is supposed to be a place with power. Paul writes some things to the Corinthians about sin that was operating in the midst of them. And he said, when you come together, my spirit will be with you to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Don't tell me there's not power in the, in the authority structure that God set up in his people. Don't tell me God won't go to extremes to save his people, to protect them, to provide for them, to see to their care. The Bible gives more, the New Testament epistles, give more warnings to the church about false ministers than any other thing. Why in the world would he give us those kind of warnings? Because the church has authority to do something about it. So where it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, i got to tell you, the Lord has begun to show me some things about prayer that I've never seen before. I've been in this for, you know, a good long while. Uh, it's not that I'm the old man of the church or anything, but I've got about 30 years of going on this stuff and have been taught well. I mean, I don't know what better teaching you can get than Brother Hagin, especially on the subject of prayer. And the Lord has been showing me some things about Paul and his prayer life where Paul talks about the persecution that came against him that's known as his thorn in the flesh. When he talks about the persecution, think about this. We know of uh, his missionary journey, uh, the three missionary journeys carried a, covered a span of about 12 years of Paul's ministry, 12 to 14 years of Paul's ministry. We don't know too much about him before then. We don't know too much about him after that. But we know that his missionary journeys covered about a 12-year span. Now, in 12 years, we have record of some, some, of the persecution that Paul endured. Now, if you take it apart and look city by city, town by town that Paul went to, there's only one place that he went to that he wasn't thrown out of town. If that's an accurate description of the whole 12 years, that seems like a pretty long time to me. Doesn't it you? Paul says about this persecution, he said, for this thing I besought the Lord, I talked to the Lord, I prayed to the Lord about this three times. How does that compare to your prayer life? Man, if I'm $20 short on a bill, I'm praying three times an hour. Aren't you? I mean, if there's something that's, that's pressing on me, if there's something that's, that's important, I'm keeping it right there. Now, that doesn't mean I'm begging God for it. doesn't mean I'm asking Him for it over and over again. But I'm thanking Him for it constantly. Whatever I'm believing Him for, I'm thanking Him for it constantly. Paul said he prayed over this persecution three times in a span of 12 years. Now, I don't know if that was all three times at once or if it was spread out. 
I don't know what that was. I don't know how that operated, but I know this. I know that for Paul to talk to the Lord about it three times when we have record of a 12-year period of persecution means that Paul had some kind of relationship with God where prayer was a pretty serious thing. He said the Lord told him three times, my grace is sufficient for you. That's a really poor translation in the King James because what it amounts to, what, what that really means is, my power will show up when the persecution comes. That's really what my grace is sufficient for you means. My power will show up when the persecution comes. Quit trying to get rid of the persecution, Paul. This is the way it is. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But when the persecution comes, my power will show itself stronger. Okay, well, I can imagine that to be, all right, if I pray about this, and it, it, listen, my first missionary journey, first place that Paul runs into is the, the deputy of the, 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 the governor, Sergius Paulus, that tries to persuade the governor not to listen to what Paul says, and Paul commands that a mist be, come, fall upon him and he be blind for a season. Well, tell me the church doesn't have authority. Now, I don't know what chapter and verse is for that, but Paul made it work. So much of the time the church is just sitting back saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. Well, how about using the name of Jesus? So Paul starts off pretty strong. But then persecution comes. Paul talks to the Lord about it. Maybe the Lord says, don't worry about it. My power will be stronger than the persecution against you. But the persecution continues time after time after time. Paul gets thrown in jail. He gets beaten several times. He winds up being shipwrecked. He winds up going through all kinds of different things. If it was me, I would ask the Lord about it again too. Wait a minute. My Lord, you sure this is the way to go? I think I'd prefer just not having the persecution. Wouldn't you? Tell me how many ministers you know of that that kind of treatment wouldn't run them off from the plan of God for their lives. Can you not see why God picked Paul? He was a guy that's going to hang in there. God knew that. God knew that as strong as he was persecuting the church, he'd be just as strong for the things of God. So anyway, long story short, this is kind of a side note. But long story short, Paul winds up asking the Lord about this three times. I guess after the third time, Paul finally accepted the answer and said, Okay, well, I won't talk to you about this anymore then. Is that what your prayer life's like? should be. You and I should be communicating with the Lord in such a way that we're able to talk to Him about the things that are going on and get our answers and be satisfied and settled with the answer. It may take us a while. I, I imagine it took Paul a while. I'm guessing it took Paul all 12 years to get settled on the answer, but he finally got there. How do we know? Because he said, okay, I've learned. I've learned to take pleasure in the things that I'm weak because where I'm weak, that's where the power of God's going to be strong. He learned to look for it. He learned to trust in it. So here in James chapter 5, verse 16, I remember where I am. In James chapter 5, 5, verse 16, where it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James knows what he's talking about. He knows that he's talking about the authority that's given to you as an individual. Now, how are we going to do this work? If this is the commandment, if healing is the commandment of the church, we see it from Mark chapter 16. We also see it from what John wrote to the church. 
what Jesus said, these signs shall follow, or I'm sorry, uh, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do in my name, because I go unto the Father. Then he goes further and says, if you ask, call for, or require anything in my name, that's what I'll do. That's John chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you call for, whatever you put a demand on in my name, that's what I'll do. That's how we're going to do the works. That's how they did the works in Acts chapter 3 to get the, uh, the crippled guy healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. So if we've got that same mandate, if we've, the, the church of today has the same instruction that the church did when Jesus left and commissioned them, how is it that we're going to do that? I want you to see two verses of Scripture. First of all, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. I'm going to keep quoting this and referring to this Scripture until you learn it. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good. What good did Jesus do? And healing. All that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. What is that verse of Scripture telling us that the source of the power for Jesus to heal was? The Holy Ghost. It doesn't say because Jesus was the Son of God, he went about doing good and healing. It says he was because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost and power. After Jesus was anointed by John in the, or was baptized by John in the Jordan River, it says he went into the wilderness. While he was in the wilderness for 40 days, then he was tempted of the devil. Luke chapter 4, verse 15, I think it is, says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And that's when he began to preach that I'm anointed by the Holy Ghost to heal the sick. And that's when the healing miracles began. Jesus healed the sick by the Holy Ghost. Please get that. The church world misses it so terribly by thinking that Jesus healed to prove He was the Son of God. You can't ever find where Jesus says that. Never. But you can find Jesus saying, I'm not the one doing the works. Well, Jesus, if you're not the one doing the works, who is it? He said, it's the Father in me that does the works. Well, how's the, the Father's in heaven. How's the Father in Him? By the Holy Ghost. The healing works and the miracles began after the Holy Ghost came on Him when He was baptized by John in the Jordan River. That's what Acts 10.38 is telling us. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who enabled Him, who equipped Him to, do, to go around doing good things. What good things did He do? Well, part of the things that He did that were good were healing. Healing miracles, healing signs, healing wonders. Look with me to, to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Notice what Paul says about his own ministry. Romans chapter 15, I'm going to start reading with verse 18. Paul says this, writing to the church, he said, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not wrought by me. In other words, I'm not going to tell you about things that I've heard. I'm only going to tell you about the things that I've seen God do in me. Now, why did he do those things through you, Paul? To make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Now, folks, what's interesting is that the modern-day church says that Jesus healed in His earthly ministry to prove that He was the Son of God. Jesus never said so. However, the Bible says that we will heal to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. The modern-day church has got it completely backwards. Jesus didn't heal because He was the Son of God. He healed because the power of the Holy Ghost equipped Him to heal. He healed as a man, just like you and I will, his purpose was to reveal the Father, not to reveal Himself. 
to reveal the Father and the will of God where healing and so forth is concerned. What's our job? Our job is to follow commission, to preach the gospel, including healing the sick, so that people will know that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's alive. Not to know that we've got power. Jesus, over and over again, Jesus, after He would heal the people, He would do miracles and things like that, Jesus would walk away. If Jesus was trying to prove that He was the Son of God, why in the world would He walk away? Wouldn't that be the time to build a monument saying, I am the guy. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. That's why you've seen these miracles. But Jesus not only walks away from the crowds over and over again, He turns to some people and say, says to them, don't tell what happened to you. He's not trying to make a name for Himself. Well, then what is He doing? He's trying to show this is God's will for His people. Pure and simple, this is the will of God for His people. Why then are you and I, the church of the... Well, the church, period. There's no old church, new church, you know, book of Acts church, modern day church. It's all the church. What are we supposed to do? Well, Paul tells us. He said that he did signs and wonders and miracles to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. In other words, the Lord worked with him, confirming the word with signs following, just like Mark 16 says. Now notice verse 19. He says, I did these things. These are the things that God did through me to make the Gentiles obedient through word and deed. How? Through mighty signs and wonders. Where did you get the power to do that, Paul? By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have, please get this phrase, I have fully preached the gospel. Paul is saying it's not a full gospel unless there's power, signs, wonders, and miracles. I have no idea why some churches call themselves full gospel. They ought to call themselves half gospel. I have absolutely no idea why some denominations say, well, we don't bother with that healing stuff. We just preach the gospel. Not according to Paul. Not according to what Paul said he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to say. Paul said it's not the full gospel unless mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Ghost. In other words, it's not a gospel of words. It's a gospel of power. Now that's why the modern day church, the church period, can do the same works that Jesus did because now we've got the same power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus received when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It's not because we're something special. It's not because we've got right doctrine. It's because the power of the Holy Ghost always confirms the Word. Always. Always. Without a shadow of a doubt. You can prove it by history. You can prove it by the, the, the language, the Greek language of the New Testament. You can prove it by doctrine. You can prove it in any and every way that you want to. You pick. It can be proven time and time and time again that the church is commanded to lay hands on the sick for the purpose of the sick being healed. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I, I, I see that. I'm just afraid to do it. Why? You've got the same power of the Holy Ghost. But I don't feel like I do. Show me anywhere. Jesus, Peter, James, Paul, whoever. Show me anybody that said, and I felt a special surge of power, so that's when I prayed. 
Folks, the power of the, uns- the power of the Holy Ghost is unseen and it's unfelt until it's applied. You're never going to feel the power of the Holy Ghost until it's applied. That means you have to lay hands first on the sick and then you'll see the power work. Amen? Who needs healing in their body? Okay, keep your hand up. All right, those around you, how many believers do we have around them? If you're believers, I want you to turn to where they are. I want at least two or three people laying hands on the people that have their hands up. So if you need to have hands laid on you, raise your hand. Keep your hands up long enough for people to get to you. You can stand if you want to. You can sit if you want to. doesn't matter. Posture makes no difference. Okay, did anybody have their hands up to receive their healing and doesn't have somebody with them? Need somebody else back by Jerry? Got it? Well, we've got a couple? Okay, good. Anybody missing out? Don't leave anybody out. <clears throat> okay, now folks, remember, there are two directives that are given to the church. Number one, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They, the believing ones, shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. The second directive is given to the ministry. If there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Obviously, the people that are laying hands on you are not the elders of the church. But don't worry. It's still the same power of the Holy Ghost that worked with the disciples who preached everywhere and confirmed the word with signs following. So we're doing exactly what the word says. So here's what I want you to do. I want those of you that are about to receive, I want you to close your eyes. don't want you to get distracted by anybody or anything. I want you to simply get your mind on the fact that the Bible says that when we lay hands on you in faith, in the name of Jesus, you will recover. That's all I want you to think about. Okay? Please, please, please don't start saying, oh, please, God. That negates faith. The Bible doesn't say if you're worthy, then this will happen. It says it will happen. Okay? So don't start begging God. Don't start thinking about, oh, I wish I hadn't done this wrong. None of that matters. What matters is we're going to act in obedience to the Word. Now, those of you that are around them, don't say a word. Okay? I'm going to pray for everybody, and at the end of that prayer, we're all going to say amen. You that are laying hands on the sick are going to say amen, saying, I agree with that, it's done. You that are having hands laid on you are saying amen, it's done, I receive in Jesus' name. Okay? Everybody clear? All right. Everybody comfortable? I'm going to pray for 30 minutes now. (laughs) Now watch how short I pray. Everybody close your eyes. Get your eyes on the truth of the Word. Thank you, Father, that your Word is true. We lay hands on the sick in in obedience to your Word. We thank you that from this moment forward, the power of the Holy Ghost shall minister healing to the sick, and they shall begin to supernaturally recover In Jesus' name, amen. Let us lift our hands and thank God because it's done. Thank you, Father. Thank you that it's done. Not because we feel it. Not because there was some lightning that flashed. But because your word says so. Thank you, Father, that it's done. In Jesus' precious name. From this moment forward, the sick that had hands laid on them are supernaturally recovering supernaturally recovering in Jesus' name. 
just like your word says. Oh, Father, thank you. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be delivered from sickness. Thank you, Father. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by feelings. We walk by the truth of your word and not according to anything else circumstantially. Thank you, Father, that it is done. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it with me. It's done in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. I think they've got a little fellowship thing set up out, uh, out in the foyer. You can hang around with us for a little bit and fellowship. We invite you to do so. God bless you.